stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is science fiction writer William Gibson. While Gibson himself does not believe that science fiction's primary concern is the prediction of the future, he nevertheless is responsible for coining the term cyberspace and for envisioning the world of the internet and the world wide web long before it became a reality. Gibson's debut novel, Neuromancer, was the first to win the Science Fiction Triple Crown, the Hugo Award, the Nebula, and the Philip K. Dick Memorial Award, at a time that many of the technologies we now take for granted were hard to fathom, and yet Gibson led us to try. Gibson more recently has been writing novels in the half-reality of the present day and near past. The Chicago Tribune says of his book, Pattern Recognition, that no novel has yet to surpass it as a meditation on the attacks of 9-11. His work is central to both the cyberpunk and steampunk movements, and The Guardian in 1999 said Gibson was the most important novelist of the past two decades in terms of influence. He's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his much-anticipated new novel, The Peripheral, one that returns Gibson's imagination to that of the future both near and far. Welcome to Between the Covers, William Gibson. Well, thank you. Why don't we start with the kernel, the original impulse or thought that began the project of the peripheral for you? Oh, that's difficult because I, I, it, it starts with a, a cluster of kernels, really, and it, it, the process begins before there, before there's before the idea, and the process begins, and I, I wait for the idea to sort itself out of whatever I've accumulated since the last time. Well, let me rephrase and ask you, was there something in your life where you were in, in relationship to your past works that led you to choose to uh, place a work again in the in the near and far future versus well, yes, the recent that's, past. That's easier, easy. That's easier to to address. I, I had initially I wrote three novels set in what I assumed was was the mid twenty first century. That was in I wrote them in the mid in the mid to late eighties. I then wrote wrote three novels set approximately now, and that was in in the nineties. And those those books, which began with Virtual Light, I think of now as really they're more they're 
they're not about a future as much as alternate history because we've we've lived our lived our way in into their time. But and when I got to the end of the the that second set, I ha- had a feeling that the yardstick of weirdness, as I think of it, that I used to measure the um, the bandwidth of weirdness in contemporary reality had become outdated. And it was a very essential navigation tool, had been for me, a really essential navigation tool for creating imaginary futures because in order to work, they have to be a little bit weirder than contemporary reality. And I would was writing a book called All Tomorrow's Parties, which closes that three-book sequence. And I kept, in effect, looking out the window, and the world outside the window was at least fully as weird as the world I was describing describing in the book and I thought that that you know that my my yardstick was was out of date so I began a project with pattern recognition to recalibrate my yardstick of of contemporary weirdness and basically I was exploring the real world in a way that I, I hadn't done I hadn't done before. And having completed that project, it, it seemed to me that it, it behooved me to attempt uh, a, an imaginary future again to, just to see whether I'd been right and whether the, the, yardstick, the yardstick worked. And so that was the... The reason I, I I tried to I tried to do this, and what what happened was that it once I had the the machine, if you will, that does the imaginary futures up and running again, and it had been was very dusty and rusty, and had not been used literally in the real twenty first century until I until I wrote this book. I started shoveling in everything, all the weirdness that had, <laughs> accu- had accumulated in the past 14 years of the, of the 21st century, and the stuff that started slowly coming out the other side <laughs> was uh, so dire for the, for the most part that I, I was kind of appalled, and I thought, dude, this is like... This doesn't look good. This is darker. This is darker than Neuromancer. This this stuff would give the characters in Neuromancer uh, heart attacks. So, some of it, like they wouldn't want to go to, they wouldn't want to go to this, go to this world. So I said, well, you know, that's what it is. And and so I I started my process of of casting. You know the casting call, like who who will the who will the characters be? And I I don't even know how I do that, but it's something I have to do at the beginning of the book. And I I 
got this young woman walking down a hillside somewhere in the rural United States toward running water in the evening. I don't know why. And I kept working, I kept working with that, and she began to emerge, and as she began to emerge, her, her milieu emerged with her. And so I began to have half, uh, half of it, and then eventually, through a similar but separate process, I, I wound up with the the other the other half of it, which is the the counter viewpoint to her viewpoint, and they they alternate in the in the chapters. You have two futures. One you you just mentioned. Uh, sort of a near future rural American South, which is an unusual setting, I think, for a lot of science fiction. And then one that's several generations ahead of that in in London that's radically different. C- can you talk about uh, what was appealing about those two locations and the difference in differential in, in, in time frames? Well, initially, I didn't have, I didn't really didn't have the idea of the differential in in time frames. I I assume that Flynn's world and her her quite un- economically unfortunate county in whatever state it is. It's it's deliberately kept vague as to what state it might be. And all of the town names in that state that you you do see are. Completely imaginary. Um, I thought that there would be some kind of there would be some bigger, more sophisticated uh, outside influence that would be in contrast to her, and and I thought it it could be something as simple as the people from Atlanta are really bad news <laughs> compared to the people in her hometown. It could just be like bigger drug dealers or something. And, but that wasn't wasn't emerging for me, and I, there were no characters, no characters turning up. And then I happened to go to London, and I, I had lunch and a visit with my friend Nick Harkaway, the the novelist, and he happened for some reason, standing in his back garden in Hampstead to explain to me the, the um, electoral politics of the city of London and how the city of London is, in a strange way, an entirely separate country and not entirely a, demo, a democratic one. And really, really bizarre. And to this day, because I, I haven't seen him since and I, I sort of haven't dared to ask him, I'm not sure whether he told me the truth or made it made it up, but either either way, it it uh, triggered this sort of fugue state of imagination in which I imagined what he was telling me as the the government of a, 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 a really successful. Post post apocalyptic London, hmm. and by the time I got home again to Vancouver, 
that had gelled into Wilf and his his very his various problems and the the uh, shadowy and necessarily the well the creepy and necessarily kind of shadowy government that that runs his runs his world. Well, tell tell our listeners what a peripheral is in, in the book. Well, a a peripheral is an artificial but largely biological human body. And people, peripherals in our world in terms of computing would be your mouse or your keyboard or an extra, extra screen from your, for your computer. It's anything that adds functionality to a computer. In Wilf's world, peripherals, peripherals are, are genetically human but, but not, in other ways, essentially non-human extra bodies that people can, people can inhabit and operate and, and experience the sensoria of from any, from any distance. So if you, if you live in Portland and you can afford to keep a, a peripheral in Paris, whenever you want to be in Paris, you just jack in and you're in Paris in your, in your other body doing anything that you could do in your own body except apparently have a sense of smell Huh. I don't know why, but that that came in. Unless you're willing to pay a lot extra for the thing to have for your your peripheral body to have a sense of smell. I think the idea emerged from wondering idly what the end absolute end point of drone technology would be, and I think it would be. A drone body, and when the when the peripherals in the book, the peripheral bodies in the book, aren't being used, they're controlled by a, their manufacturer's cloud AI, which just makes them behave like like courteous, quiet human beings, and you, you wouldn't be able, you wouldn't realize initially that. You probably would never realize that what you're talking to is an artificial body controlled by this company's cloud AI because it's very pleasant and, mm-hmm. and it can it can carry on a conversation. But there's nobody there; it has no self. And if the cloud AI is turned off, it just sits. And pe- people some sometimes leave them under dust covers. <laughs> our our protagonist in the near future, rural South Flynn. The drama starts in the peripheral when when uh, she takes over for her brother who thinks he's beta testing, being hired to beta test yeah. a game, and she sits in and and in playing this game, witnesses what may be a murder, which she is led to believe could be a real murder, and that this may not be a game at all, and that that uh, tension that happens there when you mention drones, it, it reminds me a little bit about that dissonance around ethical responsibility 
the video game quality of yeah. of drones. And in this case, the assass- the potential assassination may not even be happening from a government. Like mm-hmm. today, we think of it mainly yeah. from governments, yeah. but in the future, it may be quite private a private yeah. individual using yeah. a drone. And Flynn's brother and his his posse of of young young veterans are all like mad for drones and they have dozens dozens of them because they worked with them in in the war uh, and they just take they have them the way somebody that they might have a shotgun huh it, I, I don't know if you've been following gamergate recently the controversy around women in the gaming world who've mm-hmm. spoken up about sexism yeah. and have ha- and have been threatened with with violence but there was a certain satisfaction in light of gamergate to have a female protagonist in the game world and it almost felt like a feminist critique of some of the violence that one sees in gaming and i wondered if that was a conscious thing or if perhaps well, i'm reading it bringing no, that into it, it. it very much um it very much predated, like the the book was turned in in its final form in in mid July, and at that point I I knew nothing. I knew nothing of of GamerGate, but I, I have a daughter in her early thirties who's a a native gamer. She grew, you know, she grew up with she grew up with the games, and, and what I really know of of games is through through her and watching watching her watching her play them. So I'm extrapolating in in this book. I, I'm extrapolating from that parenting experience and just from what I've been able to she also is sometimes work is professionally works in the games industry and in game development so I, I have a little bit of contact a little bit of a little bit of contact with that the thing the idea that I found mo- that most interested me in the peripheral is that Flynn plays, the the very violent games that she played when she still played played games for a living, and it's some it's one of the ways that uh, in this book that a disenfranchised American underclass can put dinner dinner on the table. They work for richer richer gamers who assemble armies of really good of skilled skilled players and bet large sums of money on the outcome the but the the people who are fighting and dying in the games are doing it to feed their doing it to feed their children and that fascinated that resonated for me as a you know let's not go there sort of thing I could see, you know, it's one of those things that I could sort of see happening. Uh, I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't come to that. Well, I, I'm surprised that I see some reviewers saying the peripheral is optimistic. I, I think it's 
it's there's hope in you there's a space of hope and it's i think it's cautionary but it doesn't feel like this sort of late stage capitalist collapse is, I, is really necessarily yeah. an optimistic vision uh, i think that the the uh end of the book i, I didn't i wasn't planning it to, i wasn't planning it this way but having yeah, having finished it, and I was you know, sitting around with it, um, trying to figure out what it was I had done, it, it seemed to me that the, the end of the book is a sort of litmus paper for the reader's sociopolitical sophistication. And if you... If you want to think that's a that's a happy ending, <laughs> an optimistic ending, well, more power to you. But if I found it it uh, gratifyingly ambivalent when yeah. finally, for as as the author, I was like like really relieved at the it seemed to me genuinely creepy level of of ambiguity, which is pretty clearly, uh, pretty clearly underlined. I mean, one of the book's major characters, very major characters, and, and the, the character in the book who knows the most about what's really happening in the world, her last lines in the book are human, all too human. Mm. And uh, that was... Uh, quite conscious on, on my part. Well, I know that you push back against people who, who consider a lot of your work dystopian, saying that you could certainly imagine worse worlds than the ones that you paint. But, they, but at the same time, it would be a stretch, I think, as you said, to call them optimistic or bright futures. Well, I thought when I wrote, when I began to write, when I, and when I was writing, it, I didn't really think about this and until I began to write my first novel. I don't think I thought about it when I was doing my journeyman short stories. But when I began to write uh, began to write Neuromancer, I had to make a lot of decisions very quickly. The book was actually commissioned, which is weird. Otherwise, I don't think I, I would have ever tried to write a novel at that point. Uh, it... One of the things I I decided was that I I couldn't I just didn't I didn't have it in me to do space opera like I didn't feel it um, I didn't want to do post apocalyptic wasteland which is sort of the traditional thing for a young man to do because a young man doesn't know much about anything and and he can always do an apocalyptic wasteland. And the world, the, at that time in the world, the Cold War was still going on in the United States and the USSR, were poised every passing second with their fingers on the, the button that could destroy the entire world forever. It actually sounds insane now to say that, but that was literally the case. And we now know, in retrospect, historically, that on at least two occasions, very specific dates, which weirdly we don't, we neither know nor celebrate, 
or you can f look the dates up. It nearly happened. Mm -hmm. It came, you know, some some Russian some Russian had a keyboard stopped it. Saw that the systems were automated and went, oh, shut that down. They're not really, the Americans aren't really launching a preemptive strike. Anyway, that was, it seemed to me that when I wrote Neuromancer, that it was an act of optimism because so many intelligent, well-informed adults around me at that time thought that our fate was going to be mutually assured destruction. And in Neuromancer, that hasn't happened. They had a little abortive nuclear war, and the global multinationals said, yeah, you're not doing that again, and they did whatever it is they did that created that, created that, created that world. So it did seem optimistic to me then. And, and even, even today, the, this huge number of the world's population would happily immigrate to the world of Neuromancer and be way better off. Mm -hmm. I'd rather live in Neuromancer than, than Mogadishu it's it's got <laughs> it's, it's it's got more potential. Right. I mean, it's actually safer. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to William Gibson about his latest novel, The Peripheral. Well, let's have you read a little bit from the book for our listeners. Okay. Well, I'm going to read the the second chapter of The Peripheral, which is called Death Cookie and is written from the point of view of Wilf Netherton, a dissolute young British publicist somewhere, somewhere in, in the future. And he's, he's just awakened with a terrible—he's awakening in this chapter with a terrible hangover. And while he's, while he's been blacked out, a problem has developed with— his most recent client, who was until very recently his most recent girlfriend, which is is going to prove hugely problematic throughout the course of the book. <clears throat> Netherton woke to Rainey's sigil pulsing behind his lids at the rate of a resting heartbeat. He opened his eyes. Knowing better than to move his head, he confirmed that he was in bed alone, both positive under current circumstances. Slowly, he lifted his head from the pillow until he could see that his clothes weren't where he'd assumed he would have dropped them. Cleaners, he knew, would have come from their nest beneath the bed to drag them away flints them of whatever invisible quanta of sebum, skin flakes, atmospheric particulates, food residue, other. Soiled, he pronounced thickly, having briefly imagined such cleaners for the psyche, and let his head fall back. Rainey's sigil began to strobe demandingly. He set up cautiously. Standing would be the real test. Yes, he asked. Strobing ceased. Un petit problème, Rainey said. He closed his eyes, but then there was only her sigil. He opened them. She's your problem, Wilf. 
He winced. The amount of pain this caused startling him. Have you always had this puritanical streak, he asked. I hadn't noticed. You're a publicist, she said. She's a celebrity. That's interspecies. His eyes, a size too large for their sockets, felt gritty. <clears throat> he must be nearing the patch, he said, reflexively attempting to suggest that he was alert in control as opposed to disastrously and quite expectedly hungover. They're almost above it now, she said, with your problem. What's she done, he asked. One of her stylists, she said, is also evidently a tattooist. Again, the sigil dominated his private pain-filled dark. She didn't, he said, opening his eyes. She did? She did, said Rainey. We had an extremely specific verbal on that, she and I, he said. Fix it, she said. Now, the world's watching, Wilf, as much of it as we've been able to scrape together anyway. Will Daedra West make peace with the Patchers, they wonder? Should they decide to back our project, they ask? We want yes and yes. They ate the last two envoys, he said, hallucinating in sync with a forest of code, convinced their visitors were shamanic spirit beasts. I spent three entire days last month having her briefed at the Connaught. Two anthropologists, three neo-primitivist neo curators, no tattoos. She understood that, no tattoos. A brand new, perfectly blank epidermis. And now this. Talk her out of it, Wilf. He stood experimentally, hobbled naked into the bathroom, urinated as loudly as possible. Out of what exactly? Parafoiling in, she said. But that's been the plan, he began, in nothing but her new tattoos, she said. Seriously? No, no. Seriously, she said. Their aesthetic, he said, if you haven't noticed, is about benign skin cancers, supernumerary nipples. Conventional tattoos belong firmly among the iconics of the hegemon. It's like wearing your cock ring to meet the Pope and making sure he sees it. Actually, it's worse than that. What are they like? Post-human filth, she said, according to you. No, he said, I mean the tattoos. Something to do with the gyre, she said. It's abstract. Netherton groaned. Cultural appropriation, he said. Lovely. Couldn't be worse. On her face? Her neck? No, Rainey said, fortunately. If you can talk her into the jumpsuit we're printing on the Moby right now... We may still have a project. He looked at the ceiling, imagined it opening, himself ascending into he knew not what. Then there's the matter of our Saudi backing, she said, which is considerable. 
visible tattoos would be a stretch there. Nudity is non-negotiable. They might take it as a signal of sexual availability, he said, having done so himself. The Saudis, she asked. The Patchers, he said. They might take it as her offer to be lunch, she said. Their last, either way, she's a death cookie wolf for the next week or so. Anyone so much as steals a kiss goes into anaphylactic shock. Something with her thumbnails, too, but we're less clear about that. He wrapped his waist in a thick white towel, considered the carafe of water on the marble countertop. His stomach spasmed. Lorenzo, she said, as an unfamiliar sigil appeared, Wilf Netherton has your feed in London. He almost vomited then at the sudden input, bright saline light above the garbage patch and the sense of forward motion. You've been listening to William Gibson read from his latest novel, The Peripheral. You often mix noir detective elements with science fiction. And in this case, there is definitely a murder mystery and a sense of, of that spiraling out through time in two different times. Are there people who've done that prior to you that you, you credit as influences that mix? Or uh, if not, are there some particular detective fiction authors that you consider touchdowns? I know I was, uh, I, I was very much, I very much had Elmore Leonard in mind writing, writing this book, but mainly for his, his uh, gift for dialogue and his, his use of white space on the page and his, his, minimalism. I, I didn't go back and read him, but I, I kept his dictums of, of his writing somewhat, somewhat in mind because I, I wanted that for the Flynn thread. The Netherton thread is written in a, in a, a florid sort of neo-Victorian style that I probably shouldn't associate with Mervyn Peake, but I do, you know, I was, I was, I was thinking of, the, of Peake's Gormenghast as a kind of linguistic model for describing that particular, particular kind of, of seemingly magical weirdness that Wilf is, is surrounded by. And I don't know. It, 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 uh, the question of influence as I get older changes because I, I know that, that 20 years ago if someone asked me who my influences are, who my biggest influences were, I would have had a, a list right ready and it would have been William Burroughs in some ways, J.G. Ballard and others, Thomas Thomas Pynchon, but really what I was doing was I, w I was inviting the, the listener to identify me with, identify me with those, those right. ar artists. And as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that, that 
my real influences, I was scared, probably scarcely, scarcely aware of. I, I think uh, that Lynn Dayton's earliest spy novels, which I remember just absolutely loving as as a teenager, are probably a big a big influence. I, I was just never conscious of it. I mean, I really think our big, in, our real influences are come from our native literary culture, which we acquire very young. If we're going to be going to be generally acquire very young, if we're going to be serious readers, so. I think all of that was already in place when when I started to try to write fiction in my mid mid to kind of early late twenties, and so there weren't uh, there weren't adult uh, epiphanies reading reading some someone when I was twenty five and thinking yes I'm going to. <laughs> this guy, this guy, he's found the way. I'm going to be like him. I don't think it was like that. I think it was. I was already uh, colored in in certain ways without even without even realizing it. And probably the most powerful influences were pre uh, secondary education. I, I don't think it was what I was reading as an undergraduate in university as much as what I was reading when I was 15 or 12. Hmm. Well, one of the choices that I really like that creates a specific experience that I, I think doubles down on this detective aspect of the peripheral is that you tend to avoid exposition. We're, we are dropped into the world's we have to infer what the objects are, what the vocabulary mm -hmm. is of the world, and it takes some time. And, and while we're watching the characters themselves try to piece together the clues around the mystery in the narrative, we are trying to piece together the world and, and dimensionalize it um, through watching them move in it rather than through exposition. Mm -hmm. is, is that uh, something that as you w wrote the peripheral, you specifically were aiming for as, as an effect, as a reader effect. I, I, not that I. It wasn't as though I stood apart from, I stood apart from the process of the text and made a, and made a, a creative decision. It was much more organic than that. In fact, what happened was that that. Uh, I was appalled initially by how much work it was <laughs> to to move move the the narrative forward in the way that in the way that I had begun it. So I began to to more consciously understand the way that I had begun it, and I began to see that it it had for it it seemed to have made certain rules. For itself, mm -hmm. and I, I thought that if I violated those those rules, uh, I was going. I was never going to find out what they would ultimately have have produced. And one was that it would it would uh, be very very sparse 
on on exposition. It would lack what science fiction writers call called sometimes called the as you know Bob pages, right? Where someone explains how the the universe works and and as a a reader of of fantastic fiction of, ver- of various kinds. One of my greatest pleasures of, of the text is, is being required to infer uh, the meaning and structure of, of a world I've been thrown into that uh, see, initially seems incomprehensible. I, I just love... I just love doing doing that. Uh, you said in an interview once that the lack of novelty growing up in a small town in in rural southern United States made you develop this this capacity to infer that you could look at an object and imagine a distant yeah, place because yeah, of yeah. The, uh, an absence of stimulation. Could could you talk a little bit about that in in relationship to this? Um, well, when I uh, when I began to try to write fiction, um, I found it far more difficult than than I would have I had imagined it would would be. In fact, I found it impossible. And that the only thing that I could do from the start with, with any surety and pleasure was to describe imaginary objects or describe real objects in in imaginary imaginary conditions and my earliest published fiction is actually a collage of, of descriptions of imaginary objects I found a way to frame it uh, with surrealist elegance as I thought it <laughs> thought at the time and I could just bodge all these imaginary things uh, things together and I still, to some extent, worked that way. It became like a, a standard tool in my in my toolkit that I could could uh, I could give the reader more of what the reader needs to understand the nature of the world and have the satisfaction. The reader would have the satisfaction of having figured it out for herself. I could do that with manufactured objects wherein are, to me, visible the whole history of our our society. Like walking into a, a junk shop or a flea market for me is is a, an experience akin to walking into a really great museum because it's all... It's all human artifacts, and all human history is there, in is there in, in a sense. So I wanted to play by very strict rules of science fiction golf, and and not. Not make it not make it easy, for, for the reader to figure out what was. What was going on on a second reading? Though, I can pretty much guarantee a close second reading the the reader of the peripheral the reader will realize that 
that huge parts of it are prefigured and that the meaning, the, the situation is actually spelled out in quite a number of ways going in. It's just not possible to, to get it the first time, the first time through. The, not that the structure of the book is coherent because I, I don't even think in terms of, of structure, but the texture is sort of fractally coherent, all maybe like 85% fractally coherent. Like it makes a kind of sense in and of itself that is more evident on a, on a second reading. And, and it's filled with sort of Easter eggs for people who've already read it once. Well, there's also a certain pleasure in having two futures looking at one future's uh, relationship to its own past, which is mm-hmm. in this in this book, the other future, the nearer future. Yeah. Um, Wilf Netherton, living in the far future London, doesn't seem enamored at all by the world that he's living in and has this great fascination and nostalgia for yeah. the past, which raises the question, is this something universal throughout human? Is this something universally human? I, I wonder because it feels I, like... I suspect, I suspect that it is because it's something I've, I've noticed in my lifetime as a as a reader is that is that every every generation avenged you know when every generation is finally old enough they they see them come to see themselves as the last truly human generation before the deluge of whatever <laughs> that weird stuff is that's coming coming over the hill to over the hill to crush them. And you can find that you, the ancient Greeks did it really, really eloquently. Like, like the Chinese, you know, ancient Chinese did it. We've, we've always, we've always done that. And, and together with it, there's a, a sort, often a sort of concomitant admiration for the authenticity and, and, realness and simplicity of 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 life in life in the past and one influence on on this i think was this book was was deadwood because the thing i most loved about deadwood is that it's set in this mythic looking place that that we all grow up seeing seeing in movies and and uh, on TV and inhabited by these people who we, for the most part, traditionally have depicted as being like us, but but rubes in some way, like technologically un, unsophisticated, and people who would like like freak out if they were exposed to our level of advanced technological complex complexity, but innocence, you know, and is. And in, in Deadwood, you see that set, and it's inhabited by the scariest people you've ever seen on television. People, bad guys who could take out bad guy, any bad guy you've ever seen on television just by thinking about it because mm-hmm. they're really, really smart, and they, they, they're out to, out to survive. And I wanted 
that fascinated me. I thought that was an incredibly great thing that Deadwood, Deadwood did. And I, I was also conscious of the way in which in, in, in science fiction, we it, traditionally, there, there's a kind of tradition in, in science fiction of viewing the, the inhabitants of the future as effete somehow, weak, decadent creatures. Their brains are too large. Their limbs are spindly. I mean, that's been a cliché of, of science fiction almost since science fiction began. Huh. And I thought, that's funny. Like, the, we think it's truly all too human because we think that the people... People in the past are hicks and rubes and, and naive, and that the people in the future are weak and effete. Who's good? Like who's the crown <laughs> of creation then? Right. If not, if not us, and that's that's the human, that's the human nature part. And you've you've said before that you suspect <clears throat> that we're like the Victorians in the sense that the our own self perception is going to potentially be very different than the way history sees us ultimately. Yes, although I think that we're, we're at, it's not so much the Victorians. I think that we're like everybody. I mean, that same, uh, same idea will apply ultimately to whoever might be looking at us in the future. They have no more, they, the people in the future will have no more idea of what the people further in the future will see them as than, than, than we do. You've also talked about how you feel like it's easier to imagine the future, to imagine the way the future might be than it is to actually imagine the past. Uh, I think you've even mentioned it would be harder to imagine a world without audio recordings, for yeah, instance, than it yeah. would be to imagine an extension mm-hmm. of the technologies that we have today. I think I still think that's true. It, 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 anyone can do the thought experiment of trying to imagine uh, what the world was like prior to to recorded sound, and it's an odd, it's an odd thing. Or another uh, an. Something else I've, I've been thinking about lately is is how all of the literature and all of the the films and art prior to the advent of of the cell phone are going to seem to depict an entirely alien other other world of quite incredible human isolation. In which, in a 1940s film, an individual alone on the street is actually alone on the street. And that's going to become incomprehensible to us. And I suspect it already is, to some extent, incomprehensible to, to most of us because we're a thing, you know, we're a. a Ask Siri away from speaking to anyone, anyone we know anywhere in the world at at any at any time, and and we live in a, a sort of quasi post geographical universe. So the world of a uh, the world of a 
actual Victorian novel, like a Dickens novel, is going to require this fantastic imaginative effort on the part of late 21st century readers. Wow. That's really interesting to think about, Mm -hmm. actually. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to William Gibson, the author of The Peripheral. There's a central aspect to the peripheral that is a spoiler that I, I'm not going to explicitly say, though we, we may dance around it a little bit. But one aspect of the book that you do that feels like a very unique part of the book, you've attributed an inspiration to uh, a short story from the 1980s uh, by Bruce Sterling. And yet, uh, I, I don't know if you read the Tor.com review that suggested the possibility of a re- I, of a connection and or inspiration from Borges, but and I know you love Borges, yeah. but there was this great quote, and I, I, I'm from the the uh, story called the Garden of Forking Paths that I was yeah. just going to read and yeah. see if that felt like a, yeah. a companion yeah. piece to yeah. to the peripheral. That'd be interesting. Your ancestor did not believe in a uniform absolute time. He believed in an infinite series of times in a growing, dizzying net of divergent, convergent, and parallel times. The network of times which approached one another, forked, broke off, or were unaware of one another for centuries embraces all possibilities of time. We do not exist in the majority of these times. In some, you exist and not I. In others, I and not you. In others, both of us. In the present one, which a favorable fate has granted me, you have arrived at my house. In another, while crossing the garden, you have found me dead. In still another, I utter these same words, but I am a mistake, a ghost." It feels at least like uh, in the same part of the family tree to me as the yeah, peripheral. I'm sure. It, I'm sure it is. I know. I first read. I first read that story when I was about fourteen years old, and it and the rest of the collection it, it was in was like a major psychedelic <laughs> experience. <laughs> it was genuinely, genuinely mind mind expanding. Uh, it's very weird. I wasn't unusual in that I was a 14-year-old reading Borges in in the early 60s, though. Like Borges enjoyed this brief, broad popularity in hmm. in trans in translation. That's but, surprising, actually. Yeah, he it, it, it was, uh, and the nearest thing to him was another Argentine writer named Julio Cortazar who. Who wrote Hopscotch. Yeah, wrote Hopscotch. He also wrote a short story called Continuity of Parks that I think of as having having some strange connection to the Garden of Forking Paths. But I've always I've had that as because I read it when I was fourteen, I've had that as part of my native literary culture. So I, I don't even have to you don't have to cite it. Yeah, I don't have to think about it. Well, it also reminded me of once you were talking about your experience as an expatriate. You li- you've lived in Canada for a long time, and yeah. there's ways in which America is your native pl- place, but mm-hmm. there are ways in which you no- are no longer a, a native of America and the ways that it has gone since you've left. Yeah, yeah well, so what? Uh, that's kind of a recent uh, recent awareness for me or a recent idea for me is I'd always wondered how like does one become Canadian 
by, you know, lifelong (laughs) expatriation. I thought, how could that be? It just seemed, I looked inside myself and I couldn't see my, couldn't see myself becoming, becoming Canadian. And then, you know, in the past couple of years, I've realized that what happens is that the United States, of which I remain very much a native, goes away. And, but, and the, but that that happens constantly in, throughout human, human history, that the, the country from which, the country in which we were truly born ceases to exist. We outlive it. And because we're not there witnessing its changes we're holding on to the memory of the way it was yeah. in a different way than someone living in the That's country. That's true, but I think even yeah, I think it doesn't you don't have to be you don't have to be an expatriate to to experience that. I think you only have to live long enough for the majority of the world in which you were born to have to have changed to to have that experience. And you also have said that you wanted a double future in the the peripheral to create uh, a sort or provide a sort of parallax. Yeah. Tell tell our listeners what you mean. What what is a parallax, and and what is the idea of a double future creating one doing for you? Well, if you don't, if you if you have only one eye, you have no depth perception, and that's because you need two eyes some distance apart to create what physics calls parallax. You need need to have light sources coming in from coming in from two different two different angles and then you have depth perception, uh, which is why we have two eyes or in cases of spiders and whatnot, even more. Even it's why they're very they're they're very very few uh, evolved uh, cyclopean animals. And uh, are you trying to provide <laughs> essentially a sense of depth and dimension for us to look at potential future? Well, I wanted to I wanted to see what would I wanted to see what would happen. What would happen when one? I hope reasonably well-realized imaginary future looks at another, I hope, reasonably well-realized imaginary future. When they look at each other and when they can, when they can see each other, how they look to e- each other. It wasn't something that I could recall having experienced as as a reader and I myself didn't know what it would be like so uh, a certain long stretch of the composition of the book was for me was erecting a framework that would allow that to allow that to happen in in considerable detail. I suppose if I were a more methodical writer or a completely different kind of human being, I might have tried to write a short story as a sort of architectural model. Hmm. But 
I don't think prose works that way. I think prose is sort of more fractal in in its nature, and I think that that the only way you can find out how that works in a novel is to go ahead and write go ahead and write the novel. So for a final question today, William, back in the 90s, you were on a BBC show called Desert Island Discs. And yeah. you, you talked about your biography, but also would in, intermittently talk about various influential songs. And at the end of the show, they, they wanted to know what your Desert Island book was. They said you would get uh, the complete works of Shakespeare and you'd get the Bible and you'd get to choose one more. And your answer at the time was uh, instead of washing up on the island, imagine that you were flying over the island in a plane and you had three books in the plane. And on any given day, depending on your mood, you would grab one book as you jumped out. And those three books at the time were the complete collection of Sherlock Holmes, Ulysses, and the complete works of Borges. So I was curious if you felt, if that, if you recognize that today, or if you would change the books in your plane, I'm. As I grow older, I'm actually less fond of Ulysses, I think. But I suppose that could, could, reverse itself. I I think that, at that time, I I, I was hoping to seem more high tone, <laughs> but. The complete, the complete Sherlock Holmes and and the complete fictions of Borges would still be like, like you know, those are the last. Uh, that would be a dilemma then. Which one of those? Yeah, take? that would that would be a dilemma. Huh. Well, it was great having you on between the covers today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. We are talking today to the author William Gibson about his latest book, The Peripheral. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs>